0: Well, it's good to have you all here today. Um, last week, we, we're continuing a series that we're calling Wildfire. Last week, we talked about how our heat or our love for God is kind of this driving motivation for evangelism, which is kind of a, a not-so-popular word in our culture and even in the Christian circles today. But we, saw, we talked about this idea that when our temperature gets so hot, when it gets hot enough, it overwhelms some of the obstacles that cause us not to want to share people uh, with other people, the gospel. And those two obstacles that I mentioned last week were just— just these things that we can feel somewhat ashamed of the gospel as it's framed in our current culture because it, it's uh, it's not um, uh, l- l- highly looked upon for us to say hey I have a disagreeing worldview and so it feels like we're imposing right and so we just wanted to recognize that that's kind of one of the obstacles that talks uh, that, that that continues to be kind of maybe an extinguisher and so how do we engage that without creating a people that is, a, a situation where people feel like they're projects right and and to actually love them is the key to that loving Jesus loving others and then we wanted to recognize that there is some legitimate embarrassment for the historic christian missteps in our history right And so there's almost a part of us that kind of tends to back away from even notifying or letting people know of our Christian connection, let alone to tell somebody else about that. And so just to kind of pull those in front of us and say both of those, neither of those, are the gospel. They're distortions of the gospel. But that the gospel itself would have us love people and love God genuinely, truly, uh, but to even be able to boldly proclaim that. And so our goal here is to ultimately see that our source, for this is our love for God, which causes, in, in its unimaginable sacrifice, that Jesus died for our sins, causes us to want to say that love needs to be transferred on to others as we love others and want them to meet Jesus because we have experienced an, un, uh, uh, an unfathomable love ourselves. I want you to take a look at this quick little cycle that's going to be up on the board. So it's just this, um, this idea our love of God should translate into a love of people. But what you may not realize is that our love for people will then translate and lead us to a love for God. And the more you love one, the more you love the other, right? The more you love God, the more you love people, the more you love people, the more you love God. And so it's this cycle that kind of tends to create its own energy, its own momentum. And when you enter into the kingdom of heaven, It's exciting. When you start to see people come to know God, it becomes exciting. And one of the things I wanted to point out in there is that if you have had conversations with somebody who's maybe new to the faith or wanting to check it out, it starts to reveal some things, right? You rediscover old truths that maybe you learned a long time ago but have walked away from. And you start to remember like, oh, yeah, I remember that story. I remember that thing that God did. I remember the love that God showed in that moment. But also, people start to ask questions that cause you to be like, oh, I don't know the answer to that question. And so what ends up happening is it reveals gaps in your own understanding of God, and your own theology. And so by talking to other people about God, it creates, whoa, intro two. <laughs> by, by talking to people about God, it creates this kind of cyclical way of creating more momentum, revealing gaps and causes you to say, hey, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going st- to pick up the, the, the book of 1 Kings. You read 1 Kings, we're going to read it, and we're going to talk about it together. And so you can see how there's this cycle that takes place. Well, I want to introduce you to one more cycle, and I want to give you a couple more barriers today that I want us to begin removing. And it's just this, that radical obedience leads to radical fruit. But also, the opposite is true. Radical fruit leads to radical obedience. Now I'm going to give you a quick story to kick us off today. Um, So when I was like in first grade, all right, hold on to that, because that's going to be shocking in a few moments. First grade... I decided, since we went camping all the time with our family, that I was going to help my dad start the fire this particular weekend. And so I went and got my dad. I said, hey, dad, come here. I, I, I did something. I want you to check it out. Like, all excited. Come check this out. He comes into the garage, and before me is not one, not two, not three, but four Molotov cocktail bombs sitting in a nice row on the garage in front of me. Where did I learn about those? You might be asking yourself. I saw Rambo 3. okay. Naturally, my mind thought, wow, if it can do that to a tank, it can definitely do this to a fire pit and our camping. But what I didn't realize is that it could also consume about 20 square feet around me as well as us in the midst of it. My dad calmly says, Eric, step away from the bottles. <laughs> step back. There's a door right there. I want you to go out the door. I'm going to take care of this. Now, I was a little disappointed, but I walked out. I started loading up the wood into the truck, about a quarter or so of, of wood inside of the back of our, uh, the, the trailer bed of our, of our truck. And to my disappointment, later on, we're sitting there at the fire pit, and my dad begins to build a traditional fire, a much safer traditional fire with the newspaper at the bottom and then the kindling over the top of that, and then some wood, the wood that I had put inside of the truck bed, right? Now, throughout the night, what do you have to do in order to keep a fire going? You keep adding wood to it, right? And one of the things I want us to understand is we talked about the hot love of God, that in order for us to sustain a fire, we can't have just the spark. And so last week, as we talked about the spark, what we have to realize is that we need more than the spark. We have to have something dense, something that's flammable, something that's available to continue keeping this fire moving as we do it. And so the heart of the, or sorry, the heat of the wildfire understanding and that metaphor that we're using is that we spark it with God's love, but we keep it going with this ongoing obedience. The fuel of the fire is the Christian life lived out in obedience to God. Now I want to remind you of a quick verse that we talked about a few weeks ago, Romans 12, 1 and two. It says this, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and his perfect will. Now, when we commit to following Jesus, there's a radical exchange of values that takes place, right? We commit to some things, but we also commit to maybe giving up some things on the other side. Our values, our agendas, our things that we have been pursuing are now given over to embrace the values, agendas, and things of God. You've surrendered your life to an authority that is not your own. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. So when you read this book, and you come across something that's like, "I don't like that." Your discipleship includes trusting that God might be better, or might understand more than you do. Your discipleship with God includes the possibility that, like, I, I, I guess I deny myself that then. And now I come into this thing that the scriptures are telling me to do. And your obedience is a part of your ongoing understanding, a denial of that, a, a, to look at that and be like, I'm not doing that, is an admission, acknowledgement of a part of your life that you're either unwilling to surrender to God or a lack of faith, right? Sometimes it's not that I'm not willing. It's just like, man, I don't, I don't know if I can trust you with that yet. I just haven't gotten there in my faith yet to say I'm going to give this or that thing up. Now, if that feels harsh, here's the kicker. The more you do it, the more you realize that God knows better than you. The more you do it, the more you know that God knows better than you. The more you realize he knew what was healthier for you than what you thought was healthy in your own life. The more you do it, the better off you realize that God's plans for you are better than your plans for you. And now I want to do this kind of a little quick aside because I didn't grow up in a Christian household. Most of you have heard me say that before, but this is what happened to me. When I encountered God at like 16 or 17 years old, I had a a framework, a worldview by which I lived given to me by my family, given to me by my experiences, wherein I know this is how I think and treat money. This is how I operate with my relationships. This is how I interact with what I understand sexuality is. This is how I operate when it comes to um, how I am going to think of careers and think of education. And when I came to know Jesus, I had to say no to that. If you grew up in a Christian household, however, you may have had a lot of things that at least seemingly, and maybe importantly, like, like, like specifically they really would, but not always, right, looked like what the Bible was teaching. So what you may have had was just a framework that always kind of affirmed you were right in some areas, but what you may not have exercised was the muscle of understanding that sometimes you are wrong and you're going to have to let things go. I, didn't, I entered into this by saying no to everything, everything. And so there's this conditioning that comes in that I want us to kind of observe in our own hearts and minds depending on where you fall in that range of understanding how you you came to know Jesus. But when we commit to following Jesus, sacrificially we give of our time, of our resources to proclaim the gospel. We arrange our lives differently so that in all we do, we might be about the kingdom. And it takes a bit. We're not going to do it overnight, but there's increments and bits of things that we say no to this. I'm moving in that direction. And we might even have to set aside things that we believe and hold dear to our hearts that are incongruent. And don't allow us to proclaim the gospel in the midst of it. And so it's my belief that when we live our lives as a sacrifice, though, there is a cyclical nature of radical obedience that leads to radical faithfulness in your life. All right? And radical faithfulness will then encourage you to continue to be radically obedient in the midst of this. And we don't always get a taste. We don't always know what's going to happen. You don't always know the fruit of the actions or obedience that you do. But I guarantee you when you get a taste of it, you crave more. You realize that God has been operating on a level that you couldn't even understand. So let me give you another quick little um story as an example of this. We were living in New Orleans for a while, and on the outskirts of New Orleans is a smaller, um, it's a suburb, but it's very close to the, kind of the city. And um, we had purchased a house in this little area, and during this time, what, what happened, I, I think I've mentioned this story, so I'll make it uh, succinct, but I, I, I was getting ready for a good night. We were pregnant with our first kid. Emily was tired, so she's going to bed early, and I'm up, and I'm kind of bored, and I realized that on TNT, right, like the classic movie channel, Bar- Conan the Bar. Barbarian is playing. Now this is like, I loved Conan the Barbarian when I grew up. Like, this is, like not, this is nostalgia. This is fun. It's a dumb action movie of Arnold Schwarzenegger being crazy. And I'm sitting gearing up for like, this is going to be a fun night, right? Emily wouldn't like this. Here we go. Conan the Barbarian. And in the middle of the beginning of it, I have this quick picture in my mind of me walking out my back door. That was it. And I remember thinking, I got, like, Conan in front of me. Jesus, like, what, what is this? What, what, is this you? Are you whispering? Are you telling me to do something? And I remember trying to think through, like, this is crazy. There's no, like, it's just a picture. Like, maybe I turned around. It's a memory from earlier today. I don't know what it is. But for whatever reason, in this moment, I decided I'm going I'm to do it. I'm going to see what happens. So I get up, and I walk out the back door, which is right behind me. And then I have this other picture of me walking, taking a left turn down the street behind us. So I take a left turn. I start following this trail of just maybe the Holy Spirit's telling me to do something, maybe not. If nothing else, I'm getting some fresh air tonight. I'm missing Conan, but that's a small sacrifice to pay. And as I'm walking, I I eventually see this kid. He's about junior high age, and he's walking on the opposite side in the same direction as me. I see him kind of come out of a field, and then we're just walking. It's awkwardly 12 at night, and we're both just like two dudes walking down the street together. And I look over and I'm like, I hear this phrase heaven in my head. And I think, God, should I tell him that? And I hear yes, but I'm still a little uncomfortable and it's weird like I'm a grown dude if it's, you know, I start talking to him in the middle of the night. So I start walking and all of a sudden I'm like, I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it. And all of a sudden this kid dips back and goes behind me down the street. And so I'm like, okay, I lost my opportunity. And I said, okay, Jesus, if you bring him into my line of sight again, I'm going to say it. So I turn around this school, we're walking in front of the school, and all of a sudden I see he's walking straight towards me, we're on the sidewalk together, moving towards one another. When I see him, I'm like, hey man, it's kinda late, are you okay? And he said, that's funny, I was gonna ask you the same thing, (laughs) the boldness of this child. I said, yeah man, I'm fine, I know this is weird, I'm a youth pastor uh, at a church near here, and um, I felt like God told me to come out here, and now you're here. I had this word come to mind, but I just felt like, is everything okay? And he kind of went on to tell me that he got into a fight with his dad. He went over to his girlfriend's house. There's a little bit more to the story. But eventually, when I realized his house now is right across the street, um, he just has to cross the street to get to it. I said, hey, this word came to mind, heaven doesn't mean anything to you. And he said, it does. But then he diverts us into a completely different conversation. I never found out what that was. We just kind of encouraged him, hey man, like stick to it. I know it can be tough with parents. If you ever have a need to go check out a church, our youth ministry meets around the corner from here. He said, yeah, his name was Nicky. I remember his name. And um, in the end, I've never heard from Nicky ever again. In in this moment, I believe when I got home, I had just participated in a supernatural divine moment. I believe it to today. And it was fruitful. It was more fruitful than just taking in a goofy action movie with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? But it was exhilarating in a kind of way that was like, man, next time a picture pops into my head, I'm going to follow that trail. I'm going to see what God might have because it was sure more interesting, more fruitful, more adventurous than taking in artificial adventure on a television set. You hear that? I can artificially live out this adventure or I can go on one for real. And so I'm like, I'm going to take that bet next time this pops into my mind. And so to this end, Jesus nudged me that night. And one byproduct was, I am now compelled to take more risk and engage with him out of radical obedience. Not that radical, but it was weird, right? Even telling this story is kind of weird. To take that step of obedience. And what I want you to see is as we jump into this, there is a guarantee as it pertains to evangelism for you being radically obedient. And this is going to sound like an exaggeration, but I assure you it's not an exaggeration. So this is it. You can be 100% successful in your evangelism 100% of the time. You can be 100% successful 100% of the time. Does that sound like a little too crazy to believe? That when you engage people with the gospel 100% success, I, I can guarantee you that. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn your Bibles to it. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. We'll have it up on the board too. We're actually starting in five. I think I put four up there, but we're going to start in five. It says this What, after all, is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, and God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Okay, so so this verse is directly about believers not idolizing people that they follow, right? Paul and Apollos. And that does mean that, but it also gives us this little nugget of information, the the idea of how we interact with one another in the kingdom of heaven. And this is what I want you to see, three things from this verse. One is that kingdom operations, including starting a relationship with Jesus, are a process. Kingdom operations are a process. The second thing is not everyone engages in all parts of that process. Some water some plant seeds, and then later on somebody harvests. So we don't always engage in all aspects of this process. And the third thing is this. Jesus is responsible for making the things grow. Jesus is responsible for the growth. So here's my question. What are you and I responsible for in the kingdom of heaven? We are responsible for being obedient to participate in the process Obedient to participate in the process. Every believer is empowered to labor in the soil of souls. Every believer can plant and water and petition God to bring more people into the kingdom of heaven. God cause the increase, cause the growth. God uses humans in the process to proclaim the gospel. But whichever part of that you are involved in is not up to you. Wherever it might fall in the timeline of someone coming to know and place their trust in Jesus, you don't get to choose which part. Are you going to water or plant or harvest? You don't get to know that. You're not even responsible for the response on the other side and somebody's uh, willingness to hear and receive or reject what you just told them. The only thing you're responsible for is to be obedient to participate when and how God tells you to in the process of someone coming to know them. Now think about the dynamics there. If you can say, as you're sitting there, I've never led anyone to know Jesus, but I have been incredibly faithful to sow the seeds. I've been incredibly faithful to water. I want you to know that your efforts, your labor were not in vain. You just weren't the harvester. But think about the other part, right? Like what if you can say, I have harvested thousands of souls for Jesus. Like think the Billy Graham where he's doing these giant altar calls, I have decided, right? Do three more rounds if I have decided. Get them coming in here, right? You might be that person, but look, that's awesome. You're amazing, but you owe a debt of gratitude to the people behind you who watered and watered and, and sowed out the seed because that was what it took to get them to the point of saying, I'm ready to say yes down the line. And I want you to see this, hear this, God saw every single person who participated in that process the entire way. He sees it all. Someone planted, someone watered, and someone harvested. And maybe for some of y'all, someone planted and replanted, because we weren't sure what kind of soil that landed on. And then someone watered and watered and watered and kept watering, because some of us need a little extra watering, amen? I needed extra watering. And so even in my telling of my story, there was this guy who was from Texas who went to Bullhead City, Arizona. That's not even on the map for the most part. And this guy decided to do an old-fashioned revival, gave an altar call, and I was a part of the harvest that day. But what that guy doesn't know is that there's a guy named Shane, who's now one of my best friends. And on one day, as I was making fun of him, badgering him about being a Christian, he stood up and said, look, man, you don't have to be friends with me. You don't have to like this about me. You don't have to go to church or not go to church, but you need to stop bothering me about this because there's nothing you're going to do to change that. I follow Jesus. I remember thinking, okay, all right, I'll like back off. But I remember walking away thinking, what is it about that that he cares so much that he's willing to like fight for it? And that little seed was planted in my head. This guy at the end, the harvester, he doesn't know anything about Cassie, who I was dating, that invited me and said, hey, can you check out youth group? Even though I had told her, don't even try it. I will never step foot inside of a building. That's something for people who just need, like, like some. they can't deal with real life, and so they're going to find some sort of belief or idea out there. Don't ask me. That guy doesn't know about that this moment where I'm sitting on a bus on a field trip for my high school, I don't even know what it was we were doing, and I can't, oddly enough, writing this sermon, I couldn't remember for the life of me until this morning, so I'm gonna say it, I couldn't remember this guy's name. His name was Hector. Hector was having a conversation with another guy on a bus, did not even know I was listening to him. And what he said convinced me to back over here say, I'll go check it out next time Cassie invites me doesn't even know that I heard him say it. This doesn't include Debbie, who was the youth pastor at the time, who watered that seed by putting up with my constant antagonism, constant critical questioning of all of the things that they believed. She continued to be patient and watered and watered and watered. And even an angelic encounter that I've described before in a sermon wherein God came to me directly through an angelic being in a dream. All of these things took place where the seed was planted and watered here and watered here. And Debbie knows how to water. If you could ask her today, she knows how to water. And then some guy with a cowboy hat (laughs) comes in with his thick Texas accent and says, with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you raise your hand? And I put my hand up and pray this prayer. I said, hey, if you prayed that prayer, would you be bold enough to stand up? I stood up. Now go back to the youth room. There's gonna be a counselor and they're gonna talk to you and I got baptized the next day. My point is this. You are responsible to participate in the process somewhere along the way. Though you may not know what God is doing behind the scenes, though you don't know what might be happening in someone's heart, in their mind, you have been called to a radical obedience wherever and with whomever God has called you and when it comes to you, it usually comes in a whisper. It's that quiet moment where you hear in your heart can you tell them what, that you're praying for them? And then can you actually pray for them? <laughs> Don't just say it, not do it. Could you just anonymously be very generous with your tip today? And you think, God, why would I just throw down an extra money, no, 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 I didn't say you are gonna get to know the details. I need you to be radically obedient right now and tip this person, because I need to encourage them. Someone else is gonna water, someone else is gonna do someone else is gonna harvest. I don't, I don't got to tell you the details. I just need you to trust the process, sew into it, and tip this person extravagantly today. It's in that still small voice where Jesus says, Hey, right now, can you tell this person how I redeemed your relationship when it wasn't going well? Can you tell them how I healed you? Can you introduce them to me? I know it's going to be bold, I know it could be a little difficult but today I need you to know that I've been doing something in their heart and their mind and in their life and can you today just tell them that the only name by which they can be saved is the name of Jesus? Can you proclaim the good news? And it's in those moments that we decide, are we going to be obedient? Are we going to not be obedient? Are we gonna say yes are we gonna say no to that gentle whisper of God? And my hope today is that Common Ground Northeast becomes a place where we become radically obedient as a norm that we enter into these conversations, leave the rest up to God because he's the one that causes the growth and know that he's doing something with it. Now, most Christians know Paul and the massive impact, the Apostle Paul, and the massive impact that he had on Christianity, Uh, but there was another important character that maybe you haven't heard of. Uh, Pastor Sam pointed this out to me this week, and so the scriptures aren't going to be up here. I didn't tell them. I'm going to just read them out to you, but there's a man in Acts 9 who participates in the process by saying, yes, his name is Ananias, and in Acts 9, verse 10, I'll just read it out. It says, now, there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. That's an important phrase, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straighten at the house of Judas. Look for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem and where, and there is authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on, his na- on your name. And the Lord said to him, Go, for he has chosen the instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake and for my name. So Ananias departed. He entered the house and laying on hands, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain sight. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight, and then he arose and was baptized. They took food and were strengthened. Ananias had every reason in the world to say no. This man is murdering people, Jesus. I cannot say yes to this, but he decides to be bold, radically obedient, and he says yes, and that yes changed history forever. God had been preparing him on the other side, and this radical obedience on your part wherever you're at could have the kind of fruitfulness, radical fruitfulness on the other side that causes major kingdom movements to be created, a legacy of generations and generations of people who begin to live out of a love And in part with the kingdom of God. And so this is what I mean when I say radical obedience leads to radical fruit. And radical fruit leads to radical obedience. When you see the fruitfulness in your life from your obedience, the yes becomes so much easier. So part of my prayer today later on is that I'm going to pray that God would give us a taste of that fruit. To encourage us that the Lord is good. This is the way this works. If you do this... If you focus on this, participation in the process, you instantly become 100% successful 100% of the time. Now, I want to address two things that I think stop us from being obedient briefly before we close out. There are two myths that I think cause us not to be proclaimers of the gospel. One is that, and, and maybe you're surprised by this, it is the fact that clergy and professional pastors exist on this earth. You are not equipped or qualified. We send people to seminary. We send them to schools. They're they're specially gifted. They're 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 elite. They've got something we don't. So I don't have to do it. That's what we pay them to do. It's a myth. The way we build our churches fortifies it too, right? And so as we as a culture are trying to kind of maybe deconstruct some of that ideology in us, there are some who are naturally gifted with gifts, but Ephesians 4 tells us that they were given those gifts of teaching, and proclamation of evangelism, all of the gifts for the sake of showing others how to do it, not to be that on our behalf. And so if there is a part of you that gets around evangelists and says, I can't do that, you read it wrong, and you say, wow, that's amazing. Hey, can you show me how you just did that? As some of you are naturally gifted, the only qualification necessary to evangelize, to be equipped to proclaim the gospel is a willingness to be used by God. It's a willingness to be inconvenienced when you've got something else on your agenda. It's the willingness to be engaged. It's the willingness to be bold. It's the willingness to believe that God is working behind the scenes even though you can't see it. It's the willingness to allow your life to be used up like fuel inside of this fire to lay down your agenda and say, I'm going to be radically obedient in this moment. The second myth is this, that there is a singular one right way to evangelize. And there's lots of tools for evangelism. Do you guys remember the tracks from the 1980s and 1990s? They still might be out there, but they were like those little pamphlets they'd leave in bathrooms. I told you about the one with the $100 bill. It looked like a $100 bill and you pick it up. It would say, do you want to know where, you know, true riches in the kingdom of heaven can be found? You're like, ah, man, that's not what I wanted when I just opened this thing up, Right? And they have uh, usually pretty direct kind of things in there. Those are really popular. I'm not saying that they're necessarily all bad. You have the four spiritual laws that were incredibly popular for a while coming out of Campus Crusade. The cold call, right? If you died tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity in heaven? Like, I was, I was getting lunch, man. I mean, I wasn't expecting to have this kind of conversation. Apologetics training was incredibly popular. Using the Ten Commandments, right? Like, hey, have you ever told a lie? Yeah, so according to the Ten Commandments, you're a liar. I'm like, well, man, I just, I mean, I said a lie. Like, no, you got to say, I mean, here you bring it down to this. Are you a liar? Are you not a liar? And they have these very confrontational, like, tell me you're a liar kind of situation. Dare to share was popular. Evangelism explosion. The list goes on, right? Now, what I want to say is none of these things are inherently bad. I'm I'm poking fun. None of these things are inherently bad. Some of them are bad, but I'll let you sort through which ones are bad and which ones aren't. What I want you to see them as tools to put in your toolbox. There's all, there's all kinds of ways to proclaim the gospel. And every one of these might be a moment to say, oh, I'm glad I did that apologetic study. I can talk to you about the canon of scripture. And these is because that happens to be the, the question you're asking right now. Oh, I, I can do this, you know, right here. This is the Roman road and all the ways that, you know, the, the, the wages of sin or death. And you, you, you kind of walk down this thing. These are all tools that you want to have. And the more you have, the better off you're probably going to be, right? But this is what I want to encourage you to do. Take heart, have courage, jump in, and just listen to the Holy Spirit. My friend Ed Waken, he wrote the book we talked about, um, Wildfire, which is where we got the name for this. It says this, um, always be on the lookout for those spontaneous moments where God's nudges meet God's needs, meet people's needs through you. The power of spontaneity like lightning can start a wildfire as we become willing to move as the spirit leads. Every follower of Christ is called to share the good news. Every follower of Christ is chosen to share the life of Christ. Every follower of Christ is sent to be a light. The more convinced we become that God creates the opportunities for us, the more we will understand that he really can use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. So if some of us are meant to plant, some of us are meant to water, and others are meant to harvest, we want to recognize that it is God who causes the growth. And if this is true, it takes the pressure off of us. Right? There's an urgency, but there's like a pressure on us, I think, with a lot of these ways of evangelism that were like meant to help you close the deal, which is just a weird way to talk about this in general. right? And a lot of these evangelism strategies were meant to do that. But what if you just naturally listen to the Holy Spirit, organically kind of living off of what he's telling you in this moment and in that moment to be a part of this process, to water here, to plant here, to harvest here. And you might be asked, and don't don't mistake this, you might be asked by God to say something bold. I'm not saying don't be bold. He may challenge you to go up against somebody else's assumptions. He may ask you to do confrontational things. It's not always not about that. In fact, I would actually venture to guess here in our congregation, we will be most challenged in that area. Like, we are not that group of people that tends to treat people as projects. We are not that group of people who, who tends to, uh, you know, kind of come in with that, with that uh, you know, uh, way of tricking people, like, here's something, but hey, also you're going to have to sit through a, a 10-hour sermon if you're going to get that meal tonight, right? We're not that people. What we are in our congregation, I believe, is that kind of group of people Who tends to want to bring the kingdom without the king? We're more than willing to serve. We serve all over the place, all the time, but often we don't bring Jesus into it. So I think that's where we need to work on that. And we needed the other one for a while. Like, hey, dude, can you just chill out and give this person a meal right now? You don't always have to throw in Jesus in every little aspect. You know, those beans were grown by Jesus. Do you know who he is? (laughs) Like, chill out, man. But we're not that. Right? That's not who common ground is. We're definitely that other side. And I think we need to have more boldness to say there is only one way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Remember this. Your success is built on your obedience to participate in the process. You only fail if you decide not to do it. You only fail if you decide to passively allow the opportunities that God puts in front of you to walk away from you. I just want to, as we're going to close right now, but I just want to tell one last quick story. Um, And some of you have heard this part of my story, but about two weeks before my dad passed away, um, my dad did not know Jesus. Um, I was getting ready to go to, on a short-term trip to Malaysia um, and two weeks before he, he passed away, there was this point where I was on the phone with him. We had not been super close from high school, and it's not like something bad happened. We had just like kind of grown apart and gotten, I got used to like living without him, I guess would be the best way to explain it. No, no hard feelings, but like God, uh, God I, I, prompted me through something, uh, a sermon I heard, to like I need, to re, I need to work on reconnecting this relationship with my dad. So I call him up, like hey dad, let's start hanging out. We used to go camping all the time. Let's, you know, if you're down, like I want to find one weekend where I can come up. And, and come by you and we'll go out and we'll go camping. Just kind of just reconnect. He's like, yeah, man, I'd love to. This sounds awesome. And inside of that, I was nudged to say, hey, can you share uh, me with him? The Holy Spirit, Jesus saying, can you, can you just tell him about the gospel? Now, this is not the first time I told him about the gospel, but it would be the last. And I remember saying this is, he, he wasn't upset at me or anything. It was just like, that's cool for you. I'm glad you found your peace. I remember saying that phrase all the time. I'm glad you found your peace. You found the thing that causes you to have peace. But he was definitely not in alignment with that. And so as I was talking to him, I said, hey, Dad, I, just know, I know you know that uh, this is good for me. Um, and I found kind of a spiritual connection in my peace. But I would love to extend that to you and to proclaim the scriptures, uh, the gospel, as according to the scriptures. And this is why I follow Jesus. And I kind of gave him a, a brief breakdown. My dad did the same thing. He said, I'm glad that works for you, and you know, maybe someday I'll go to church with you. That's good. Thanks. Um, thank you for sharing. It was, he was being respectful to me as his son. So two weeks later, um, I'm driving to an airport on the way to Malaysia, and I get a call that my dad has died. Um, I didn't tell anyone in this group because I didn't want them to, to not let me go. So I just, like, didn't tell anyone. I just kind of kept it all in and then got on the other side. When I got to Malaysia, we had our first team meeting. I'm like, hey, guys, I just heard this out. Um, and, and, and I think it had been different if he was in the, pro, you know, if he was still alive, I would have stopped and gone to be with him, but I knew it was over, and so this, this, is, this is my, my point for, for sharing this right now. I almost missed the opportunity, because I did not want it. I, I remember saying, I've already told him the gospel. I'm not going to say it again. I, I, I'm, I'm glad. I'm gr- let me say, I'm grieved that I didn't hear him proclaim faith in Jesus, but I still pray that in His sovereignty, God sent something to him and someone to him in those two weeks, and that He made some sort of profession of faith. What I am not, though, what I am not, however, is regretful that I didn't take that moment of obedience and say yes to tell my dad about the gospel. I will never regret that. And so he got it one last time, one more moment. His, his son, like coming at him a little bit. Him putting up with me on, on the, you know, my, my young Christian angst in the middle of that. Here's my challenge to you. Who is God putting on your heart to share the gospel with? Maybe better, who have you denied sharing the gospel with because it has been inconvenience or you're avoiding that discomfort you just don't want to talk about that with them? If you have someone come to mind, I want you to follow through with that this week. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about the gospel. Be a part of the process. Water the seed. Plant a seed. If you have no one come to mind when I ask you that question, then what I want you to do is to pray today as I pray and ask God to awaken your heart and your mind to see the opportunities that God has already been putting around you. There's never a lack for opportunities. We just need to have our eyes opened to those things. And then lastly, if you have failed to share, don't continue to walk passively in that disobedience. There is fruitfulness that I don't want you to miss out on. And you don't even know the fullness of until you walk through those doors and say, yes, God, I am here, I'm I'm gonna do this. Reclaim that, have some boldness, be obedient. Now we have a spark for sharing the gospel and the hot love for God that should translate it into a hot love for other people and wanting to share that. But if you just heard you are 100% successful 100% of the time, then there is absolutely nothing to lose. But you do have the whole world to gain. Let me pray. So thank you, Jesus, um, for your word. And the revelation that comes with that Lord, I thank you just for in the hearing of your word that you can compel us to love more and more, to love you more and more, to love each other more and more, to love those who have not come yet into the fold of God more and more, God. Thank you for the spark that we get to see in your love, God, but would we lay down our lives to be the fuel of obedience in continuously allowing this fire to burn, In continually allowing us to see people come to know you, we ask for a wildfire in our neighborhoods in this day. Increase our desire to see your love known with every person we know. Prioritize our lives for us, God. You must increase, and we must decrease. And so, Lord, for those who have ideas of someone who popped into their mind, would you tell them, make opportunities, open up minds, hearts, and lives. Tell them to go proclaim the gospel. For those of us who have not had anyone come to mind, Lord, would you help us to see, open our eyes to be obedient in seeing all of the opportunities around us and to walk through those doors. And Father, would failure not hinder us would have felt sense of not being equipped enough not hinder us, God. Yes, Lord. Again, I pray for a wildfire sparked in this congregation today. We ask for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people Send. amen.